Hello and welcome back to another series of Navara FM. The summer may be over, <laughs> but some certainties remain. Theresa May is still useless. Remainers still believe they are a majority of opinion in the country when it comes to Brexit. And we at Navara Media, and I wrote this last night, but it's true. Are still wearing black. That's right. <laughs> James Butler at Pierce Penniless and I are both wearing black. And no, it was not coordinated. James, hello. Hi. Welcome back. <laughs> it's good to be back. How was your summer break? What did you do? Uh, my summer break was fabulous. Uh, I did a lot of work. <laughs> I did a lot of reading as well. And I had um, two really lovely holidays. Uh, one, which was, like, I kind of guess, a bit of a working holiday. I was in Belfast for a while. Um, and it was really, really interesting to speak to some people over there about the context of Brexit and the kind of domestic uh, politics there. Um, and I also uh, got to spend uh, a week in the Mediterranean without any internet signal and a lot of sun. And this was sea. in Formentera, a small island off Ibiza. It's Balearics, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They speak Catalan there. They do. They do speak Catalan. In fact, they speak Ibithenco, which is a, a dialect of Catalan. It's a very interesting language in its own right, but I shan't bore our listeners with the details. I think, um, was it in the Roman legions, the Balearics produced outstanding arches or something? Anyway, <laughs> that's another Navarra. Um, I had the pleasure of going to Malta again with my mm -hmm. partner, as is now becoming customary. It's the third, uh, third successive summer. Uh, and then last week I went to... Last weekend, I went to Umbria, Lago uh, Trasimeno in Umbria, on an island in the middle of a lake, which was just gorgeous. Went there with uh, Senso Comune, spoke Common Sense, very good Gramscian name for a political organisation. Um, uh, and went and spoke about a few things there in regard to the political situation, both in Italy and Europe and Britain. Um, and if you are interested in Italian politics, check them out. Which They're you online. Should be. You <laughs> it's should very, be. very interesting. It's super. Pretty interesting, actually, yes. Um, check them out on Twitter. They're Senso Comune something. I can't remember what. Also, take a check out Paolo Gibaldo. James uh, had the great uh, good fortune to uh, do a show with Paolo not so long ago. Not so long ago, yeah. Talking yeah. about his new book, and he's involved in that project. So very exciting stuff there. And that period of several days reminded me of just how important offline interaction is, strong ties are, which leads us to... The forthcoming World Transformed and Labour Party conferences. We will be at TWT as it's known. Uh, we will be hosting two panel discussions and also a party on the final day, on the Tuesday, on the 26th, a fixed live. All of that will be live streamed, as will be uh, several other discussions. I'm hosting a panel on post-capitalism and technology with David Harvey, Paul Mason, Alice Bell, and a secret guest, almost certainly from the Shadow Cabinet. <laughs> uh, that will be announced probably later on today or tomorrow. Eleanor and Ash are organising fascism and resistance after Charlottesville. I think that's with Bazka Sunkara and Koja Karam. Mm, and I'm chairing it. You're chairing it? Yeah. That's not on the uh, TVT website that's yet. That's fine by me. <laughs> well, no. You know I like an eminence grease style Well, position. I mean, the thing is, I'm sure the most photogenic <laughs> of the lot of us, so I take, uh, I take issue with that. Uh, except Ash, of course. But Ash won't like me saying that, will she? <laughs> well, look, I'm the one with the face for radio. Everybody else is, uh, everybody else looks fantastic. Uh, and then I've got the fortune of being on a panel with Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. Uh, I'll be with JC, Owen Jones, uh, Winnie Wong from the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, people for Bernie, rather, and a few other people. We'll be live streaming that as well. So lots of really great stuff to check out on our Facebook page. Also, all of it will be up on YouTube. I'm interviewing David Harvey and... 
Angela Nagel next week. <laughs> that's gonna that's gonna get salty. Uh, so that'll all be up on YouTube, on Facebook. Check it out. Check our Facebook page out. Like it to get those updates. Let's get back to today's show. Yeah. So we've been away for a month, and the last yeah. show we did was 2017 so far. The first six months had come to an end of what I think you'll agree is the most interesting year of our political adulthood, at least. We were both alive in 1989, but I don't think we were particularly <laughs> aware of what, was, of what was going on. Very quickly, can you recapitulate, just in a minute or two, the, sort of, the decisive moments, the important moments of 2017 so far? Uh, well, I mean, the, the, <laughs> uh, I, I, I would say that, that we're really, uh, you, you have to think about 2017 as 2016-17, right? So you have the aftermath of the Trump election, uh, and that really begins in November. And then you have the, just the development of Brexit policy here in the UK. It's, I mean, it's just an astonishing, astonishing thing. Uh, and it's really, really kind of epochal, actually, in terms of uh, what it's going to be doing uh, <laughs> to, to, to politics here. And then we have, uh, of course, our domestic uh, general election, which is uh, <laughs> uh, really just uh, a, a hugely unexpected result. Uh, and really, actually, and we'll come on to talk about this, because I, I think the only interesting stuff that has happened over the course of the last month, six weeks, has been the Tory party. I don't think anything really interesting has happened in the Labour Party. But I think the Tory party have been something to look at because they are really, really now carrying uh, the can for Brexit. Uh, and they're also faced with a potentially unnavigable uh, issue within their own party and uh, within the uh, House of Commons itself. But uh, ultimately, this is, this is really kind of... Uh, you know, cemented the position of Jeremy Corbyn within the Labour Party, of course, the past year. Uh, and it has really, uh, you know, it was, it's really starting to change uh, the political imaginary within uh, the UK. So I think, I think uh, you know, everything is tremendous. You know, we are in such a strange position. And if you had told me at the beginning of this year that this would happen, I would have laughed in your face that John McTernan, mm. John McTernan, mm. who is, you know, who we would have once thought of as the sort of Blairite extraordinaire, uh, has What's that about extraordinaire? <laughs> I mean, he was a, he was a Blairite functionary. That he was a late he, Blairite. Yeah, I mean, he was a Blairite when when Blairism had started to lose, right? Yeah, like right up until this year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and he is now uh, going around. Uh, he has experienced a Damascene moment, I believe, at Field Day, where he accompanied his daughter and just saw seas of youthful Corbynites, and uh, and he fell on his knees, and Jeremy, in a bright light, appeared to him and said, "John, John, why person?" John wants to win. <laughs> he wants to win. Uh, yeah, he does. He Which does. He does. Uh, um, is an important thing when you're an ideologue. Yeah. Um, Macron as well, of course. Macron. Uh, and his, his, I mean, his no. abysmal polling ratings, <laughs> which have confirmed... We did say this would happen, right? Yeah, no, but, you know, the political censor, which is yeah, the majority yeah. of media in this country, didn't. Yes, no, no. And, you know, actually people are still talking about, well, you know, could there be a Macroniste moment here? And that, in fact, takes me to the only substantial non-Tory story of the silly season, which is what people call August, because, you know, nothing really happens politically, and the press get hungry for ludicrous stories, which is the story of James Chapman, uh, who was the former political editor of Daily Mail, chief of staff of David Davis, who sort of took to Twitter in, in what became actually quite an unpleasant way. I don't want to speculate about the guy's you know, psychological state. Um, you know, he became very, very obsessive and obviously very kind of politically exercised by the fact of Brexit and sort of announced that there was going to be this new party, the Democrats, and you know, they were going to be much like uh, the kind of worst... 
excesses of Clintonite liberalism in the US and they would be unapologetically pro-Remain despite the Liberal Democrats having been largely obliterated on that platform in the course of the past election. And so the, the perception here was from people who have been moving in policy circles and journalistic circles, largely London circles, that there was a huge appetite in the country for a kind of pro, uh, an unapologetically pro-Remain, anti-Brexit party, which doesn't seem to have come to fruition. Uh, and I think that this tells us, you know, Chapman himself is not very interesting, um, but it does tell us something about, you know, one of the stories that we've been talking about over the course of the past year, which is repolarization within politics between the two main parties. And that actually there isn't, there doesn't seem to be an appetite for this kind uh, of political manoeuvre to deal with Brexit. So, you know, people are concerned about Brexit, they're concerned about the way it's going, but there doesn't seem to be an appetite out there for a new political force, a new kind of Macronist uh, force within uh, British politics. So I think this is this, this conversation, this kind of weird, uh, very kind of traumatised and furious uh, uh, exercise over the city season is useful to tell us, uh, as, you know, as a symptom of what's gone wrong with the centre. Uh, and you know, it really reminds me of some of the stuff that that happened on the left after the last major defeat of the left in the eighties, kind of retreat into either fantasy uh, or kind of desperate uh, misreadings of the mood. Uh, of the electorate, so so I think that's that's one of the things that's interesting that's going on there. But that's the only thing that's interesting that's happened over the city season, as far as I'm concerned. There's also the mooch, Il mooch, Antonio <laughs> Scaramucci, twelve day, uh, his te- twelve day uh, d- duration at uh, the White House. Yeah, I mean, you know, as press officer, there. spokesperson. Yeah, 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 yeah. As, uh, as, was he not press secretary for for was a brief director period? of communications? I, uh, strate- yeah, I, I mean, whatever. I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> so brief was his tenure. Uh, but no, I mean, you know, the Trump stuff has remained fascinating in a kind of awful car crash sort of way. Uh, it 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 is increasingly difficult to see either that he will go or that he will be impeached. I've always thought that was quite unlikely. Mm. Um, and But he also is not developing any kind of competence at all and he's also not developing a stable staff around him, which and is what, and the, and a problem. The, the Gorka guy, his technical, his like, he was called the deputy assistant. Yeah, and you think the, those two words are synonyms? Like the, deputy the assistant? Sebastian Gorka guy. Yeah, yeah. deputy assistant. What's a deputy I, assistant? I, who knows? But the, the, I think it's a Senate non-confirmable place, right? That's what they're, they're, they've been trying to get. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, but it's his PhD you should look into. It's a completely ludicrous exercise in, you know, it's, it looks like a play school, amateur hour, takeoff of a PhD thesis. It's got these well, completely... Well, you've not read mine, James. I mean, so. <laughs> anyway, let's, move on. let's let, move on. Let us move on. I've got one more thing I did want to talk about, though, from, uh, from the interregnum period of the mm-hmm. last month. One is that Labour is still polling very well, yeah, uh, which is important. I mean, it's easy to take for granted in retrospect, but you know uh, that could have been the high point for Labour yeah. in, 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 uh, on June the eighth. Uh, Mail on Sunday poll has Labour five ahead. Uh, I think it's in like forty three, thirty eight, forty two, thirty seven, something like that. YouGov, who I think are the best polling company, they have the strongest methodology. I said that in the run the election, I was right. They have Labour one ahead on forty two to forty one. So. Yeah, that's good for Labour, and also that was uh, buttressed by 14 council election results uh, on September 7th, many of which were excellent for Labour in Scotland, in England, in the South, in the Midlands. So, yes, the momentum has well and truly been kept. And then finally, we had that poll from Conservative Home uh, less than a week ago. 
which had uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg on 22% amongst the Tory membership as the favoured <laughs> replacement of Theresa May as both party leader and prime minister. Uh, and 22% doesn't sound like much, does it? But when you find Special out that, to win that. that David Davis is on 15% and that nobody else breaks 10%, uh, and this, the system is that the MPs submit to candidates, as I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, yeah, 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 yeah. they submit to candidates on which the membership must vote, and bear in mind that there will ha of, of those two candidates, one will have to be to the right of Theresa May. <laughs> um, so there is a limited field for that. In terms of who's popular, who's to the right of Theresa May, arguably David Davis, I mean he just screwed up the general election because it was on his call. It was his call. He said, let's do this. Let's have this election. So there's Davis, there's Rees-Mogg, arguably Boris, but he seems finished. There's Michael Gove. So it's plausible that the next leader of the Conservative Party, I still don't think it'd be Jacob Rees-Mogg, will be a complete clown. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's not be, not, I'm not dismissing them, but politically, a very, very strange person. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that all of these names are so clapped. Like, they've been around for such a long time. They have such heavy uh, historical... You know, burdens with them, right? Like they, they, they. These are people who have been in government for for a decade or more, right? And that's, or you know, in the case of David Davis, he's been around for so long. I mean, he was a Europe minister, uh, you know, in the time of Maastricht. <laughs> it's one of the things that makes it very confusing about why he's so uh, apparently completely at sea with the negotiations is that he should know this stuff reasonably well. Um, Anyway, so it, 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 it's hard to see that the, this isn't a party that's going to be completely beset by its, you know, by the fact that it is, you know, gradually declining uh, in government and riven by these, uh, uh, you know, conflicts. It is, however, worth saying, I think, you know, as I've said often on this show, that power operates as an incredibly strong glue, mm. right? It is what keeps governments together. And if you look at the... the, the um, political biographies of people who are in the major cabinet after 1992. Um, these are people who all had their knives out in private, but they tried, you know, reasonably hard to present a good face for a while. Um, but, you know, I mean, they, 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 they would want her gone. And it's really, you know, the, the knowledge that there's not really anyone to replace her that's keeping her there. Coupled I mean, she's essentially a hostage. Coupled in with Jeremy Corbyn Coupled, being coupled with the fear of Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, these people really genuinely <laughs> think that he's going to break out the red flag and, you know, he might. I mean, that would be nice. But, um... It seems unlikely. It'll to be me. like that episode of The Simpsons, you know, uh, where like they're like the Lenin Soviet, breaks out. Yeah, the Soviet Union never actually went away, and then like there's like <laughs> tourist booths outside. No, well, I mean, this is what the New Statesman and the U.S. Democrats think about the U.S. the, the Russia today uh, is that is that it's still secretly a, a communist well, state. What will happen with Navarre is obviously the day after a general election when for Labour is that James and I will come in in our sort of commissarial trench coats and our, our beaver hats. Uh, and uh, we'll obviously requisition the building. We'll, yeah. call it the, we'll call it the People's Radio Station. <laughs> and uh, Kalinka will be the lead-in to all of the songs. Well, uh, the, the shows, rather. I mean, listen, so it, it is easy to... Because they've done so badly, it's actually quite... You know, it's possible to forget that there was a good reason for them to call this election, which is that the economy is looking really, really dodgy. And having an election while you're in the middle of a recession is never good for a governing party. It's worse than a recession. Because <laughs> this is phenomenal. I miss this because it's been the summer and is this the productivity? People are yeah. chilling out in the summer. Productivity in 2017. Now, I mean, if you told me this five years ago when we started this project, I wouldn't have believed you. And as regular listeners will know, James and I have been relatively prescient on the 
inability of the British economy to reinvigorate growth and, and elevate living standards, right? We've, we've been very insistent on that for a long time. Nonetheless, I would never have believed that in 2017, an hour of work would create less value than in 2007. Bear in mind in 2007, let me repeat that, this is productivity. 60 minutes of work now creates less than it did 10 years ago in Britain. Productivity in absolute terms has gone down. That's, you know, we've got the iPhones, we've got robotics, the internet's a lot better, bandwidth's a lot quicker, um, energy's cheaper, uh, you know, a whole range of innovations, organizational technological have been implemented, and yet productivity's gone significantly down. And what's interesting is you have Tories go, on the one hand, they go, oh, there's the productivity puzzle, what's going on? And then a second later, they'll say, well, if he can't find a job, he should be made to clean, you know, uh, copper baths outside with a toothbrush. So, well, there's your explanation, okay? So productivity is a mess, real wages are still going down, uh, and yes, GDP, mm. obviously per hour works, productivity has gone nowhere, and per person is kind of flat too. So don't listen to the media when they say France and Italy are... Greece is a genuine basket case, okay? But France and Italy, in many ways, and I think actually the most important ways, the British economy is underperforming France in particular, but even Italy. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I think we'll be running for the sick man of Europe, or, well, I suppose, the North Atlantic <laughs> again soon. Um, but yeah, I mean, it made sense for her to want, you know, to want to get, you know, entrenched in power before that really started to bite again. And it's really not looking good. Um, I mean, you know, at some point, interest rates are going to have to rise. Um, that's not good for a lot of people as well. Um, possibly in November. Um, and, and look, I mean, she also has to conduct Brexit. And one of the reasons she uh, called the election is because it looked like, I'm laughing because because it's one of the greatest historical errors ever, is that she, she really did think she'd have an increased majority and it would free her hand a bit. Um, so, so one of the important things about this is that, you know, if she continues, you know, or if a Tory government continues uh, up until 2019... Uh, up until the day of Brexit, uh, the Brexit day, uh, and there really is an economic disaster, then, you know, it, we should think about it in, in the same kind of way as Black Wednesday and the kind of crashing out of the exchange rate mechanism in 19... You know, in, and the reason, in, the reason for this is that uh, these, these massive shocks like that, so if, if it does manifest in a massive shock permanently alter the way in which people think about political parties that are in power when they happen. The Tories rating for economic competence has never recovered to the levels it was prior to Black Wednesday. And that's really important. And th these moments are uh, the moments in which people who do not usually pay attention to politics or who have only a very kind of diffuse sense of, of you know, the reputations of parties and what they're good at and what they're bad at and what they're for... Um, so that's when those people start paying attention. So that means that the left should prepare in advance uh, a, <laughs> a programme to deal with it. Wasn't there, in some of the sub-polling ahead of the election, it wasn't, I mean, this wasn't typical, OK? This was the outlier data. But there were some sub-polling uh, data points saying that public had more confidence in Jeremy Corbyn with the economy than Theresa May. Yeah, I mean... I mean, yeah. that's just outlandish. Because <laughs> he's it's obviously going to be trusted on the NHS yeah, yeah, and housing yeah. and so... But on it the economy... Be, it, it is very unusual for, for a Labour figure to poll in that way. <laughs> let alone... Let alone Jeremy uh, Corbyn. Somebody of his background, um, yes. 
We should talk about Matters Constitutional because that's the other thing that has gone on with the Tory party and has been, I think, in the press a bit in the past week. Um, and it, it also matters, actually, in terms of a Labour Party that is thinking about preparing for power. Um, and so, I mean, there's, there's a background constitutional matter that, that is important, I think, um, which is a, a series of cases in the Supreme Court about exactly uh, when the judiciary can bat back uh, you know, parliamentary decisions and when it can vitiate them. Um, these are uh, Unison case and the Evans case, but I won't dwell on them. We'll come back to it at, at some future point when it when it matters more. But it is to say that that there is a question, and it's a question that's going to run, especially through the Brexit process, about power, about who has it, uh, about who doesn't, uh, and the you know the the idea that there is a constitutional dialogue between the Supreme Court and the Parliament. Uh, it gets called into question if the if the court is the is the entity that always has the final say. So so that is uh, that is important. But in the past week, I think listeners will probably have heard a bit about Henry VIII's powers um, and have heard you know this kind of strange uh, manoeuvre that Andrew Leadsom has conducted uh, in order to kind of rig the committee of selection and bill committees. Now. Uh, regular listeners will have heard me predict this shortly after the election, uh, because like a Cassandra, uh, I am wailing outside the walls of Troy. Um, so it's gratifying in that sense to know that I'm right, but uh, you know, depressing in another sense to see that, that this is kind of these power grabs going on. Um, one of the things to, to realise is that Brexit legislation and procedure is going to take up an enormous amount of this Parliament's time. And with a weakened hand... Uh, any other legislation, which, uh, which is in any minor way controversial, is likely to be very, very far on the back burner. And it's worth noting that civil service departments are going to be, and in fact are, already are, overwhelmed. You know, people in the Department for Transport are saying, well, anything that's not a Brexit issue is just not being dealt with. Um, so this is why it's worth not taking seriously any announcements being made by Theresa May, uh, which aren't to do with Brexit. Uh, so, so this makes her a weak prime minister. Um, uh, but but it's worth noting that we're we're going to be thinking and talking about Brexit, really, for the next uh, year or so. Have you not seen the latest the latest uh, sort of retorts about why we're going to inevitably now get a bad Brexit deal? The Tories are blaming the electorate because they deprived Theresa May of a majority. Yes. Uh, well, let's dissolve the people. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, know, do you I think mean, do you think that's something they might try and? You know what? They'll hold a gun to the head of the people and say, "Give us a larger majority." I don't know. And go to the polls. I mean, well, it they would, haven't. They... It would be an act of such incredible stupidity that that I. Well, they've got form, right? I mean, we've had I'm, two in I two mean, years. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's possible, I suppose, but I think unlikely. Um, but yeah, I mean, so this this attempt to rig Parliament, which you know, just to describe it very very briefly, there are three issues here. One is the issue of bill committees, so that's the stage after second reading of a bill in the House of Commons, it then goes to a committee stage. Those committees are supposed to reflect uh, the electoral makeup of Parliament. Andrea Leadsom uh, introduced a bill, or, or sorry, a motion yesterday uh, to uh, supervene uh, those regulations and uh, put an additional Tory member on the committee of selection, which means that they can then uh, have a government majority on all 
the the committees that consider bills. So uh, this more or less locks in uh, a you know a government hand in bill committees. That actually. I would argue, and Valerie Vaz argued in, uh, who is the shadow leader of the House of Commons, argued in the Commons, that is constitutionally illeg- illegitimate, and I'll come back to that in a moment. We have also the Henry VIII powers in uh, the what's now called the EU Withdrawal Bill, was the Great Repeal Bill. Uh, these are powers which uh, allow ministers very, very broad powers to rule essentially by proclamation, uh, to amend legislation with a kind of enormous scope, actually, uh, who in particular? So it will allow ministers of the government to, to issue secondary le- legislation which changes uh, existing legislation by proclamation. And it furnishes the, Euro- the Brexit minister in particular with quite a significant power. It does indeed. It? it does indeed. Uh, and one of the things I will come back to is the, ha- the House of Lords Constitution Committee has just recently issued an interim report on that bill, which is actually pretty devastating. <laughs> but the third thing to say, and I think this is one of the things that really underlines the contempt that the government has for Parliament, which incidentally, this is a government that was entirely predicated on the argument that they were taking back parliamentary sovereignty, and they run roughshod over it. I mean, it really is, and you know, I, I know I sound kind of fuddy-duddy when I say this, and it's not without a recognition that the UK system of government is entirely dysfunctional and needs reforming anyway. It's not to say that I am a great defender of British democracy, but the very basics of scrutiny and oversight are missing from this. Anyway, I wanted to just just to say the. Yeah. Third thing here is opposition day debates, um, and it you looks. You do a podcast just about this stuff. <laughs> no, because not enough people yeah, know this stuff. I know, right? I know. Strike a book, really. Um, trying. <laughs> uh, the, there is there. You know, the third thing here is is so opposition day debates, which are days. I think there are about twenty in every parliamentary session, which are given over to the opposition to bring motions, and these are things that are not binding on the government, but a defeat for the government in an opposition day motion is embarrassing. And it's one of the things that that really helped uh, Nick's ID cards under Blair, for Mm. instance, was opposition day debates. Also quite a a useful instrument in the prosecution uh, of of the Iraq war to to attempt (laughs) shame. I mean, it didn't work, but whatever, it caused a big PR disaster. And basically, um, it, it looks like uh, they're going to attempt to withdraw uh, Tory presence at all during opposition day debates. They might send ministers to the chamber to answer some some you know some arguments, but but it looks like they're going to withdraw them from votes entirely. You know, this is just basically you know contempt. Um, you know, so so this this stuff is uh, one of the things that, that has been interesting in the debate over uh, Leadsom's uh, rigging of these committees is uh, the presence of the dreadful Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, and he sort of intervened. And this guy, this is a guy who who gets a reputation for being, you know, uh, as if he were kind of a living, uh, walking incarnation of Erskine May, which is the manual for uh, the procedures of Parliament. And you know, he was defending the, the, all of his references in the debate were to pre-democratic or anti-democratic figures. Um, you know, he makes reference to the great Duke of Wellington's principle that the Queen's government must continue. Um, and this is a guy who was an opponent of parliamentary reform. This is a guy who opposed the Reform Act. Um, you know, just, he to clar- said, he just, said clarify, just to clarify for listeners, 1832, yeah. the Great Reform Act, what is it? Yeah. Oh, so this is what, essentially the stuff that, that <laughs> abolished, um, you know, the, 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 the like pocket boroughs and these enormous um, you know, acts the rotten, of corruption. The rotten yeah, yeah, yeah. There was like, bur- like uh, constituencies of like 15 people in yeah, them. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they were all in the gift of the, the aristocracy. <laughs> um, 
you know, so, so and this the, is and the property qualification was yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 significant, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 massive. Um, I think it's I think it's important because this tells us there's a conflict about sovereignty and about what parliamentary democracy means, uh, and about you know there, there are serious questions for us, and there are questions that we're going to have to start thinking about and answering seriously about how a left politics operates in that system. Mm. Um, and a system that has never had a constitutional moment per se. So people like Jacob Rees-Mogg can invoke these figures who are part of its political history, but who are anti-democratic. Um, you know, and, and that it operates within, you know, that a kind of stunted democracy uh, that we have operates within a system that has never really been overhauled. It's never really been changed. It's never really had a kind of thoroughgoing commitment to political democracy. And that's important. I mean, Bismarck is a, th- a more thoroughly modern politician than Wellington. <laughs> no, he was, right? <laughs> Yeah, Bismarck yeah, yeah. oversaw the introduction of old age pensions, forms of social security, etc., etc. Yeah. The first modern welfare state is Bismarck in Germany, 1880s. Uh, and you wouldn't get a modern German politician go, like the great, you know, Otto von Bismarck <laughs> said. And it's like, Wellington's more retrogressive than that. Or it's like an Austrian politician go, like, you know, like the arch reactionary Prince Metternich <laughs> said of the Congress of Vienna. And it's like, you'd say, look, you people, I mean, even like the far right in Germany, uh, in Austria, because people would be like, yeah, Metternich, that's 150 years ago, yeah. that's 180 years ago, that's ridiculous. But that's precisely what yeah, these I mean, allegedly respectable politicians are doing. <laughs> one, of these, one of the problems here that this points to, actually, is, uh, and both Henry VIII's powers and this kind of rigging, what this points to is that there is a problem in the Westminster system of a fused constitutional actor, which is that the legislature and the government, and so the executive and the legislative uh, bodies are fused, right? I mean, there is there is not much of a distinction. Uh, there's very little um, uh, room for the legislature to move in opposition. To the what, what would you like to see a separation of powers? Or I would love to see a separation of powers. I'd love to see a constitutional moment in which we think seriously about whether uh, the government should automatically have. Uh, so, so our head of state should have, which uh, presumably will abolish the Queen, um, should have an automatic majority within Parliament. I, th- I think that's very, very questionable. I think that you know, I think it's important. Um, you know, I mean, you know, the, the powers that we give to a prime minister are huge. They're massive, uh, and we're going to see exactly how massive they are. You know, I mean, the government here, you know, and I, I, one of the reasons I'm thinking about this is the action of Amber Rudd in the course of the past week, where she has in, ignored a court order and deported someone to their likely death in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, this stuff is important in thinking about sovereignty and thinking about, uh, you know, one of the great opportunities that is presented to us by Brexit. And like all the opportunities presented to, to us by Brexit, it's a decidedly mixed bag. It's to have a serious conversation about sovereignty, you, about would, the functioning of democracy in Britain, because it, we've never had the conversation. OK, so sovereignty is something I really want to talk about in the next hmm. several months, really. And I think it's just something that's completely ignored by the left. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll give you an example. So yesterday I shared on Twitter and Facebook um, a video of Pep Guardiola, the Barcelona manager, making a speech in English, which was translated into Catalan, basically saying the central Spanish government is trying to inhibit a participatory democratic process, this referendum. Now, I am ambivalent about Catalan independence, just as I am about Scottish independence. For me, nationalism, in certain contexts, can be a means to social justice, but I care about the ends, and the ends have very little to do with forms of togetherness predicated upon a shared language or ethnos. Regardless, in the face of a centralised government, which has emerged only from fascism 40 years ago, uh, I think it's fair to say, look, I'm on the side of these people who want to have a democratic ballot about the future of their region. Um, 
and you know you get comments from people on the on the radical radical left and they're saying but you know why would you agree with this like nationalism isn't good and it's saying well i mean we can't just get rid of all all of the stuff all the good there was some good stuff in the 20th century one was the right to self-determination one was that we broadly won the culture wars of the 1960s yet to be finished but the direction of travel is clear okay even in northern ireland i think there's support now for uh, abortion of two to one right in opinion polls um so yeah do you think that this is a, a lacuna on the left in terms of sovereignty because sovereignty and self-government are synonymous so if you're going to have a discussion about radical democracy you have to talk about sovereignty but because hitherto it's been enmeshed within uh the, with the nation state and a global state system predicated on the nation state that means we can't address it but it also means we're incredibly weak when it comes to discussions around democracy yeah i mean the the the, the million dollar question is about it's about what the 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 bounds of self-determination are, right? I mean, so what is the self that determines? And I don't mean that in a kind of weird Kantian sense. I mean it in a, a kind of, you know, yeah. what is the, the, the group of people who, who get to self-determine? And, you know, I, you know, because nation states are the basic political unit um, of, you know, the global political and economic system, the questions about independence also have to figure in, and it's one of the, the ways in which kind of the Catalan question is a bit, a bit different to, say, the Scottish question, is about its relation to the kind of economic structure of the state from which it wishes to depart as a yes. whole. Um, <clears throat> and whether there are subventions that are being made and, like, you know, that, that people want to take back control of or that, you know, whether it's a question. So, you know, the, the, these questions are complicated and they, they deserve actual analysis rather than, you know, assuming... This involves nationalism and therefore is bad. Like, I'm very, very hesitant to endorse any kind of nationalism. And I don't, generally. But that, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't make those questions go away. I mean, I, I, um, we've got just under half an hour left listening to our FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. We're going to move on in a sec. But, I mean, just, uh, just briefly uh, continuing that, uh, that Facebook conversation, I then said... Well, I respect the right to self-determination. You know, I don't think that the British Empire should still encompass India. And they said, well, do you think that they're the same thing? Do you think that Catalonia being part of Spain is the same as the Raj in India? Now, clearly, of course, I don't. But if you look at the British Empire, uh, compare it to the Roman Empire. Trajan was not Roman. He was a Roman citizen, but he was born, uh, I believe, in Spain. You had other, other uh, uh, emperors born in... Um, uh, Libya. Slovenia, Libya, Augustine, right? It was a Roman citizen. He was um, probably North a Berber. Yeah. Uh, Saint Paul. He says, "I am a Roman citizen." Great line. Romanus, yeah, yeah. And and the point is, uh, the Roman Empire was a profoundly different kind of empire to the British Empire, the French Empire, in so much as citizenship extended beyond uh, an ethnically determined nation state. We had colonies in India, but Indian nationals were never British citizens. Gandhi could never have become the Prime Minister. Nehru was never going to be there instead of Attlee. Uh, George Washington was never going to be there instead of uh, Pitt the Elder or whoever the hell was in there in the 1780s. My point, my point is this. There could have been an argument in 1945 saying India shouldn't, a, a radical left argument, India shouldn't leave the empire, we need to democratise the empire, and they need represent representatives in an imperial parliament. <laughs> you know, you can make that argument. Uh, I it's, probably wouldn't. but <laughs> It's really stupid. It's, really, yeah, it's yeah, a really yeah. stupid woke, argument. Woke imperialism. Um, it's a really stupid yeah, argument. Okay. So one of the things that's interesting actually about devolution 
um, and the kind of asymmetry of devolution within the UK, but also now that Brexit is coming down the line, is the realisation that, in, and in fact the, the Constitution Committee of the House of Lords says this, is that the EU is the glue that has kept uh, the UK together for, mm. for a long time. Um, I mean, there, there, there's all sorts of interesting questions which aren't addressed in, in the bill as it stands, like something like the role of EU directives, which are ambiguous in some of the clauses, um, but might end up um, leaving, say, you know, a Scottish uh, parliament with the power to uh, massively reduce water charges, for instance. Uh, and that then creates a situation of unequal competition within the UK. Uh, so th this is to do with the role of directives which uh, uh, mandate an end to be achieved yes. by member states, but don't uh, mandate the legal means by which to do it. The implementation so, be quite, can be quite ropey, can't it? It, it definitely like can. The Italians tend to implement a lot less than, say, the Dutch yeah, or the yeah. Germans or the British. Historically. Yeah, I mean, so it, it's, you know... It, you know, there's all sorts of complex and ramified issues like this that don't seem really to be to have been thought about. Um, the major implications of it can come from the most strange of places, and that there, you know there isn't much movement on this going on. Um, you know, the, this this uh, committee report is is fascinating. It's almost says, you know, and to quote them directly, um, you know, that, that there are kind of three areas. You know, it raises a, a series of profound, wide-ranging and interlocking constitutional concerns. And those are on the rule of law, the relationship between Parliament and the executive, which we've talked about a bit, and the stability of the UK's territorial constitution, i.e. Um, the, the devolved legislatures and the nation states. Um, you know, there's lots of stuff that's not very clearly defined in the bill. Um, there's lots of kind of taxonomies of, of law that are very, very blurry. Um, and this stuff is really a matter for lawyers, but it will impact on the significance of that law when matters uh, come for judicial review or, you know, how law should be considered in relation to other law. Um, the committee has actually accused the government of not only misquoting it, but ignoring its advice. Now, that sounds like a thing that you would just say, but it's very unusual for a Lords Committee to criticise the government in so open a way. Um, to quote the committee again, it, they say, the number, range and overlapping nature of the broad delegated powers, so we're talking about the Henry VIII powers now, are, quote, effectively unlimited. Uh, they read quote, a tapestry of delegated powers that are breathtaking in terms of both their scope and potency. Could they not be subject to a judicial challenge or...? Uh, possibly. I mean, that's the only check, right? Possibly. Yeah. Um, and these powers would, quote, fundamentally challenge the constitutional balance of powers between parliament and government and would represent a significant and unacceptable transfer of legal competence. Now, that is, for the House of Lords, pretty strong stuff. Um, and one of the problems that, that's going to happen here is that this, the bill that's going through the Commons also does have to go through the Lords, and the Lords are not going to feel constrained, as I've said before on this show. The government did not achieve an electoral majority. The mm. Lords are going to feel less constrained about batting back and amending this legislation. The Salisbury Convention, as you... The Salisbury Convention, so, yes, uh, So, you know, charismatically taught me <laughs> only several months ago. Um, so, yeah, the committee says, you know, there are, there are a few explicit areas of law to which these delegated powers won't apply. There are no list of actions that cannot be undertaken mm. um, by, by, by the, via those powers. Um, you know, the, the, 
you know, the, the committee says, and again, quote, the government should place on the face of the bill restrictions on the powers to limit their use to purely technical changes, i.e., you know, rather than, you know, attempting to change vast swathes of law and policy by proclamation. Um, and the other thing they say is that there is very, very little provision for scrutiny. And the committee is now undertaking a major inquiry into the nature of the bill uh, and its, its outcomes. Um, and, you know, the this is going to be a big part of it, whether there is scrutiny and checks. on it. And there aren't at the moment. There just aren't. I'm just reminded that Diocletian was a Slav. That was another Roman emperor <laughs> who wasn't uh, from even the Italian peninsula. Can you tell me something? Um, so in terms of trade, foreign external trade, clearly in regards to intra-European trade, we were in the single market, easy enough to comprehend. Uh, but in terms of external trade, beyond it, that competence lied with the European Commission. And they um, they oversaw trade policy primarily with the WTO until it sort of break down around 2002, 2003. And then it was doing lots of bilateral trade deals with you know, the US, with Canada, with Sub-Saharan Africa, etc., etc., etc. Now, clearly this... To me, that was one of the major criticisms of the EU, because yeah. uh, it was completely undemocratic. Okay, uh, and a lot of these sort of forty-eight percent go, "Oh, you're lying about it being undemocratic." No, look, trade policy was completely undemocratic. Um, now, this is one of the competences now returning to the UK after us uh, exiting the European Union in the context of this power grab. And clearly, we're going to have to make a whole bunch of new trade policies. Where's that competence going to go? It's not entirely clear. Is it going to go to the executive or is it going to go to the Brexit minister? Or uh, Presumably it will go to cabinet. Presumably it but will it would go have to be cabinet. passed through parliament? Or it would ha- I, as far as I can tell, it would have to be passed through parliament. And it, we would get into very, very dicey territory if it were... But what if it was replacing incumbent trade deals? So let's say we had a broadly similar trade agreement yeah. with the EU as we have at present, which is unlikely, by the way. It's going to get a lot worse. <laughs> but let's say yeah. we did. Then they're saying that it's just about, you know, effectively substituting like for like law. It doesn't need to be subject to scrutiny or accountability. Arguably, yeah, 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 arguably. But this is exactly what the the committee is saying, is that there aren't any clear uh, clauses in the bill that say, this is what we can't do. Yeah. In which case, you've just basically moved that undemocratic competence from the European Commission to a Brexit minister or to the prime minister or to cabinet, which is not parliamentary sovereignty. Yeah. I mean, I must say the other other aspect of this that should worry us is the explicit exclusion of the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights from uh, the translation of the EU acquis. Uh, into domestic... uh, The body of law created by the the European Union. uh, into domestic legislation. And incidentally, the Brexit minister, David Davis, used to be a big fan of the Charter of Fundamental Rights. He used it to sue the government <laughs> um, uh, against the, the Snoopers Charter. Um, Didn't he resign over the Snoopers Charter? Yeah, he was not a vanity by election. Yeah. Um, now, we still have the ECHR to protect us, the, the Convention on Human Rights, um, which is not an EU phenomenon. Um, but the two, the two things are different, right? Like the EU stuff has protections in which are quite important in terms of the, the rapid evolution of uh, technological society. So stuff like data protection, uh, which includes like retention of emails, stuff like that. Protection of children's rights or a general and freestanding uh, provision for equality. Um, so this stuff is, is really EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, not ECHR. Um, and that matters. 
and particularly matters when it's being conducted, when Brexit is being conducted by a government that has already said that human rights should go out the window when it comes to pursuing terrorists. I mean, this is a, a very broad and, and uh, completely ambiguous and utterly unclarified. Uh, I mean, when you put, place that in the context of Donald Trump and recent actions yeah. in the US saying that Antifa should be um, viewed as a terrorist organisation... Uh, domestic extremist terrorist organization yeah. Um, yeah i mean it's very easy to uh, for reasons of political expediency allow this elision this slippage between contentious politics which encompasses strikes protests uh, and say that this is actually uh, you know uh, various um, hues of terrorism anyway Anyway, we've got just over 15 minutes left. We've talked about Brexit. We've talked about the summer. I would like to talk briefly about Labour conference, mm. context and consequences. This conference could make Labour the most democratic major left-wing party in Europe if certain motions are passed. Let's talk about a few of them. One of them is the so-called McDonnell Amendment, which would see the number of nominations required to get on the ballot for a leadership race reduced from 15% of MPs and MEPs. Of course, the latter will no longer exist the next time Labour votes, uh, votes for a leader. So it would be reduced from 15% to 5%. As I understand, 5% of 262 MPs is around 13, 14 MPs. So that's what you'd need to get onto the ballot there or thereabouts. Obviously, you'd expect Labour to add 50, 60 MPs next time round, but can't take these things for granted. So that would mean if there was the reduction to 5%, the left, if it wanted to, wouldn't make any sense, but if it wanted to, could probably get two, three candidates on the ballot. Um, who knows? Maybe even the Blairites could as well. Uh, all, uh, all eight of them in, uh, in the House of Commons at the moment. Uh, but that's the most sort of contentious one. There are other ones. National Policy Forum uh, will be more subject to democratic accountability, something that was created by Blair to effectively depoliticize conference, mm. which is still nominally sovereign, but it really isn't. Um, so, yeah, what do you make of, uh, of Labour conference and uh, what kind of possibilities is it going to create in terms of left-wing politics, both parliamentary, extra-parliamentary for the next 12 months? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think there's... I'm less interested in... Well, so I, I, I... The history of the Labour Party is is a history of some, some very strange compromises and compromises which, uh, you know, that, that, that are all about that kind of post-1910 entrance... Oh, sorry, deep history now. Uh, entrance of kind of, you know, uh, new liberals into the party... Um, who eventually, you know, are part of the force behind the 1918 constitution, which gives kind of theoretical sovereignty um, to uh, conference or to, to mass membership. But really, you know, the the presence of the trade union block vote and uh, the the autonomy of the parliamentary party, um, you know, really, uh, you know, really kind of make a mockery of that. And the history of the Labour Party since then has been, you know, a real real kind of mm. unveiling of just how threadbare that kind of sovereignty is. And you think about someone like uh, Sidney Webb, who uh, is one of the drafters, the two drafters of the 1918 Constitution, um, called CLPs, frequently unrepresentative groups of non-entities dominated by fanatics and cranks and extremists. 
Now, you know, this is a, a very kind of Fabian... He's talking about the left, right? Yeah, he's talking about the left. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, like it's not a completely inaccurate description of some meetings I've been to, but, um, but you know, they're, they're largely on the right. Um, you know, but, but I think one of the things that is really... Is, I, was, I was looking at you know, the, the, what really summed up the nature of kind of political sovereignty in the Labour Party was, to me, uh, an in an introduction written by Richard Crossman, mid-20th century uh, Labour cabinet minister. Um, Not to be confused with Anthony Crossland. No, <laughs> no. I've um, done that. But, but, but Crossman is, it was writing an introduction to Badgett, who is the kind of, uh, his book, The English Constitution, is the go-to uh, text for thinking about the way in which things work. And it's, I'm just going to read it out because it's a real accurate <laughs> um, reasoning of the terrain. Uh, the Labour Party required militants, politically conscious socialists, to do the work of organising the constituencies. But since these militants tended to be extremists, a, constitu James is using, um, quite <laughs> a, a constitution was needed which maintained their enthusiasm by apparently creating a full party democracy while excluding them from effective power. Here the concession in principle of sovereign powers to the delegates at the an annual conference uh, and the removal in practice of most of this sovereignty through the trade union bloc vote on the one hand and the complete independence of the parliamentary Labour Party on the other. Mm -hmm. so, so you have it, I mean, and the PLP has always relied on this kind of Edmund Burke's doctrine um, you know that that, that they, they should have like really significant autonomy within Parliament um, you know and it's something that say in, you know Raymond Williams writes about in the May Day manifesto um, talks about the Labour Party as a compromise between kind of working class objectives and existing power structures that within uh, you know the, the Labour left uh, it's a compromise between socialist objectives and the existing power structures at the party level but that's now changing this is the thing, right? Yeah. And neither of us predicted it. No. Uh, but if you look at the dynamic, I mean, in the NEC, so there's a, there's a polyarchy in the Labour Party in terms of power and decision making. There's the leadership, obviously, there's Jeremy Corbyn. There's the Parliamentary Labour Party. There are the CLPs. There is the NEC, the National Executive Committee. And there's various informal uh, actors as well. Labour staffs at HQ have tremendous informal, mm. hidden power. Ian McNicholas, the unelected Secretary General, has a tremendous power. So there's this polyarchy at play, and the left, until recently, only really had the leadership. Okay, uh, Even if you look at the NEC, it's got 35 people on it, only six are chosen by the members. One is chosen by BAME Labour, which uh, its, uh, its delegates is Keith Vaz. He was chosen by like 600 people, right? Which is just remarkable. Um, but what we're now seeing is... That, that quasi-sovereignty for the Parliamentary Labour Party, which exercises an effective veto on who's the leader, um, if it does get taken down to 5%, I think it may even go at some point, then that's gone. Uh, if you see significant reform of the NEC, which I think is coming next year, where maybe members decide on half of the, the NEC uh, makeup. That's a big deal. If the National Policy Forum is, again, more subject to national oversight from CLPs and from members, maybe even elected, that's a big deal. If the Secretary General, which I, I think will be inevitable, is elected by members. So that analysis of, of Labour as a, an accretion of various interests and historical forces, I think totally by chance, by the way, totally serendipitously, we could be on the cusp of it seeing profound democratic transformation. And that won't just be this conference, but over the next two years, we'll finally see the, the politics 
uh, and the the political will of the membership and of the leadership um, diffuse into its various institutions more generally. Very exciting, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that I was thinking about is the way in which the, the, that thing that has now become completely totemic um, for kind of the Labour left, kind of clause four, uh, you know, to secure for the workers by hand or brain full fruits of their industry, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which, you know, became the, the rallying point of the left as it was kind of abolished. Um, you know, it was itself a kind of weird compromise between these forces. Mm. You know, the, the, the very wording of it is very kind of patrician and Mandarin, but, uh, you know, because you secure four workers, Right. I mean, so that you have that structure of kind of political autonomy mm. of the PLP, um, who are implicitly not workers. Um, but, you know, it, it, the, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it contains a labor theory of value, but doesn't really uh, you know, explore what might be meant by that or the system of exploitation yeah. that surrounds that, um, you know. Common ownership itself is not actually just nationalization, although it became it, it mm. came to mean nationalization. Um, you know, and, and it, although it's not something that we can really see or understand now, unless you're aware of the historical context, the insertion of workers, um, you know, by hand or brain was a specific compromise um, with, you know, you know, to display that the Labour Party was a kind of safe national party, not uh, kind of going to do a 1917 on people. Oh, words don't mean very much, right? I mean, if you look at the Italian constitution after 1945, I think the first clause is, we are a republic founded upon Labour. Yeah. And it's yeah. still there. Well, the, the party of Togliatti, the, the, yeah. the PCI, yeah. the Communist Party in Italy, loved that yeah. phrase. I mean, it's an amazing, no, it's an amazing constitution. But the point is, uh, yeah, words don't mean very much because <laughs> you've still got Matteo Renzi or Berlusconi presiding, uh, presiding as the, you know, the, the, the prime minister, uh, the, not the head of state, but clearly they have most political power invested in their person, mm. uh, presiding over that polity with that constitution. And it doesn't make the slightest difference. So here's, here's a thing that I worry about, about... Uh, the political tradition in which Corbyn stands and that is kind of, it's not quite dominant. I don't think it really exists in the way that it used to, but it, it still exists. Is the kind of Benite tradition, which was actually pretty concerned about the way in which the internal functioning of the Labour Party, uh, you know, was conducted. And one of the major attempts, uh, you know, the major programmes of Ben when he was sort of running, or well, standing, sorry, for the leadership. Um, Deputy leadership, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. 81. Um, yeah. And, and which, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, post-79, right? Which is the you know, yep. failure of a really conservative... Yeah, anyway. Um, you know, they, they really wanted, you know, to make that fictional sovereignty of conference actual. Mm. You know, and they proposed, you know, and it's not just Ben here, it's like I mean, the rest of the Labour left as well. You know, they wanted mandatory reselection of, of parliamentary candidates um, in order to end that kind of semi-detached status of the PLP. Um, election of the leadership by conference. Um, and uh, what else was it? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, the kind of manifesto controlled by the NEC. Mm. Right? Um, you know, and this is, you know, these, these really went to or, 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 or say something about what Ben thought was necessary, um, which is that the problem for him was the fact that the leadership had betrayed its members, right? And so it has, 
it, it often, you know, and that heuristic of betrayal is very, very common on the left, right? That if only the leadership hadn't betrayed us, if only that kind of stuff hadn't mm. happened, then everything, you know, would be in socialism already. Um, so the, that Benite animus about betrayal does sometimes fail to grasp, and don't get me wrong, <laughs> there are plenty of people um, who I would think of as traitors within, you know, within the history of the Labour Party. Um, but it fails to really think about you know, the electorate, and it fails to think actually also about the British state, which is a much larger problem for Tony Benn, actually, in the course of his career, um, than the Labour Party was. You know, the, the, he, he eventually realised that the civil service was essentially <laughs> just moving him around. Um, you know, so, so, so those two questions are, are really at stake. And at stake, as it comes to the electorate, are, you know, how you deal with decades of depoliticization. Right? That's not something that you just, you know, get to change the Labour Party a bit and then you get to go to the people and they immediately respond well. But it really wasn't present in, in that programme. Um, and the, the hostility of the British state, the unswerving hostility of the British mm. state to anything left wing uh, mm. was also widely ignored. So you have in Benism this kind of double faced, this Janus faced uh, politics, which on the one hand is like, we want to move forward to a kind of post-capitalist and definitely, you know, post-Atlanticist mm. future. Right. So like, you know, out of our kind of military alliances with the United States, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but at the same time, we want to achieve that by hearkening back to a time at which, you know, the United Kingdom had an absolute sovereignty. Uh, and it's a semi-mythical time. Um, and it, the, the two things kind of, you know, it's a repeating motif on, on the British left, but it is it has its awkwardnesses and its internal contradictions as well. Yeah, I think. I was having a conversation with uh, somebody about this the other day in terms of what would um, the challenges to a Corbyn government look like. And I'm not worried about a coup. I mean, that's kind of funny. I mean, it could happen. God, God help us. Uh, I'm not worried about a coup. I wouldn't really be worried about like an Allende situa situation or a Harold Wilson situation even. I would be more worried about capital flight and the same challenges that confronted Mitro in the 81 uh, than, yeah, a coup. And I think what we would be faced with on the left is hostility from the media, including the BBC and print, inertia from Whitehall, and overtures probably from the security apparatus, but not nothing more than that. Mm -hmm. And I think that would integrate with a certain sort of media narrative of insecurity and volatility and political turbulence, which certainly wouldn't help a radical program or instill confidence in its proponents or potential advocates. So there's all of that. But then finally, I'd add that the left hasn't actually had a propositional programme for government since PASOK in Greece in the 1980s and Mitterrand. Mitterrand failed, PASOK didn't in its own way. Mm -hmm. But that's because PASOK, Greece effectively had a 1945 moment 40 years later. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't put that Benite Labour left in that sort of sphere of actually having a propositional yeah. project. Uh, and Basquez Sankara put it very well. You know, he said, he said since the 1980s, specifically with, with PASOK, since then, radical left governments have only ever seen their position as one of like a holding position, a, a bit like uh, the Popular Front in France in the 1930s, rather than something else. And yeah, I do worry about the ability of a politics coming out of the Benite tradition, uh, capable of doing that. Uh, but we've got time, so it's something obviously we can discuss and hopefully uh, come to a, you know, a set of uh, reasonable solutions about. Maybe you have one or two for us right now, James. You have two minutes left. No, I have, I have, I have no <laughs> solutions to this problem. I do think, I mean, I agree with you on the matter of propositional politics, and I agree with you on a serious strategy um, 
about government, and it's it's not something that the left knows how to think about. It's not. It's not been a problem for the British left for decades. No, and it, it's coming increasingly into into focus is that people, yeah. without being rude, I mean, it's, this is a general sort of analysis here. People think that sort of like a woke version of liberal globalisation is left wing politics. I mean, it isn't. It isn't. We have one one point five million kids dying of diarrhoea every year. We have, you know, half the world accesses water dirtier than the the aqueducts of ancient Rome you know so a woke version of this isn't really plausible we have to rethink quite a lot of stuff um, anyway <laughs> anyway uh, that's enough for today we'll be back I think next Friday mm -hmm. residents certainly want us here we've got so much on our hands <laughs> but we'll be back yeah. we'll be back next Friday between now and then like I said interviews with David Harvey and Angela Nagel and of course check us out at TWT if you like what we're doing you know where to go. Go to support.navarramedia.com. Help us build a new media for a different politics. We'll be back next Friday. Bye. This show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navarramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarra Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navarramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media. Media for a different politics.